Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence, and today I am joined by a writer who happens to also be a trainer and activist communicator. That is Jennifer Farmer, who also is known as the PR Whisperer. Welcome in, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Yes, and thank you so much for joining us. As I understand, you're also an author of a forthcoming book called First and Only, How Black Women Navigate Work and Life. Absolutely. So First and Only, A Black Woman's Guide to Thriving at Work and in Life hits the market on February 9th. I am super excited about this book because it speaks to the racism, the sexism, the classism that black women experience at work and also when they find themselves as the first or the only. So this is very, very exciting. And I think it's going to affirm many, many black women. Absolutely, and our experiences as these are things I very much know. Uh, having been a lawyer in big law firms where I have been the first uh, associate of color in offices and having been in a lot of spaces where I am the only one and there are considerable stereotypes that accompany being a black woman. And so uh, for our viewers edification, can you sh expound a little bit upon that? So um, one of the, the issues that black women experience in work is wanting to dodge the angry black woman stereotype. From the time that we were girls up until uh, uh, teenage years and young adulthood, you know, we have been told to be very, very careful that we don't be labeled an angry black woman. And what that does is it causes us to suppress emotions. It also denies the fact that anger is a legitimate emotion. And so sometimes you will experience challenges and because you are fearful of being called that terrible word, which is also like a curse word, you will um, suppress it and keep it inside. And that can be counterproductive. So that's one stereotype. The other thing that black women experience as the first and only is a sort of isolation. To people who are outside of your position, they are excited for your, your success, they applaud you, but there's also a loneliness that comes with being the only person in a position, being the first person to do what you are doing. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is acknowledge that, to name it, and to really create space for Black women to see themselves in the whole category of leadership and self-help books. Oh, man, that is very powerful and something I could have used uh, when I started in a lot of these industries. Uh, you know, it really resonates me what you said about the angry black woman, because it's like you you end up it, you really end up putting out all this extra energy to try to avoid that, uh, whether it's using excessive exclamation points or emojis. I found yes. myself doing those kind of things. Uh, yeah, because you're avoiding that narrative. Absolutely. And you know what I tell people is oftentimes when black women go to work, it's not just the job that we're doing, but we're doing emotional labor. We're doing a, a ton of double checking. How's the email? How's my tone? You know, we also experience tone policing. There's politics of our hair. And so there are so many considerations that we have to keep in mind in order to feel safe, to feel like we're accepted. And it really should not be. And what I'm telling people is these kind of things, they happen even in organizations that pride themselves on doing good, organizations that have a noble mission. And so there is work for all of us to do to create environments and spaces where Black women not only feel safe, but are safe. 
Absolutely. And I know that there's considerable professional segregation that continues to go on, uh, you know, because there are black women who are the first and only in that space. But there's a reason for that. It's because, uh, you know, there have generally been fields that we have not been uh, really allowed to be into and welcomed and embraced. And so seeing that occupational segregation play out, I guess, how do you address that in a way that makes people still want to pursue their passions, but also that they remain cognizant of essentially these ceilings that are put up above us. Well, I think that, you know, one of the messages I'm trying to convey in the book is there is work for all of us to do. When you walk into a situation and you're the first or you're the only, that is not because others have uh, a lack of talent, a lack of experience or a lack of ability. But as you mentioned, Adrian, there are systems put in place that limit who can thrive. And so for organizations and companies that want to do good, they really have to look at not only their hiring practices, who they're in relationship with, but the work culture in the environment, because it does no good to hire competent and talented uh, black women, but then create an environment that's so toxic that they cannot be there. For black women, I also say that, you know, as you forge these new trails, it is difficult for you. It may be difficult for you but to keep your eye on the black women who are coming alongside you. I won't say beside or behind, I'll say alongside you, because what you are doing will certainly give way and create space for others who perhaps just seeing you there gives them a reason to hope, a reason to keep trying. Absolutely, because we do want to continue to try and also just to use our own skills and to fulfill our purpose. And yeah. something that seems... Um, very much the case in terms of black women is the fact that we are overrepresented in the workforce where we've had the highest labor force participation of all women for years because black women are more likely to have multiple jobs and unfortunately we're still making 62 cents on every dollar that a white man makes and so when it comes to being in these workplaces and these spaces where you're getting a lot of microaggressions you're being held back and whatnot do you have any advice for black women when it comes to tackling that economic gap that's there well you know one thing that I say is that all leadership advice, it must be viewed from the lens of race and gender. And when it comes to the wage gap, again, it's not because of a lack of talent, experience, or ability, but there are systems in place that mean that it's harder for us to get ahead financially. And so um, one thing that I've done in my career, and I encourage others to do, uh, and, and to do it, you know, having considered it carefully and making calculated risk, is don't wait to don't wait until it's the standard evaluation time to ask for a raise, ask for a raise anyway. And I'm very, very clear and very, very honest in the book that sometimes just by asserting your worth, just by saying what you want and you need, you may be looked at sideways, but to do it anyway. And if the environment that you're in is hostile to your asking, uh, you may have to do that until you can find something better. But I'm a big proponent of asking and asking even if there are penalties that come alongside it. Yes, and there are a lot of penalties that are implicitly really imposed upon black women in workspaces. And something I special, specialize in is educating and informing people on workplace sexual harassment. And as research has shown, black women file three times 
as many workplace sexual harassment complaints with the EEOC as white women do. And it's not at all because we complain more, but we're targeted more because of the legacy of slavery and this Jezebel thought that we should be hypersexualized. We're lucky to be here. Also, uh, with individuals in the workplace being well aware that we lack uh, societal power to really fight back. And so in your book, in any way, do you help black women uh, get past that as they have to deal with these sexualized uh, advances or put downs that may show up in workplaces? Well, I mean, I talk a lot about the importance of building alliances and relationships. And what this book is, is a framework to support black women. But the systems that we go into, they still have their work to do. And so um, we're doing all the right things. We are among the most educated demographics in, in the country. So again, this is not a fault of our own. And as we continue to, you know, to, to look for different opportunities and to build alliances and do everything that we're supposed to do, the corporations, the companies, um, the organizations, they have work that they have to do as well to support our ability to continue to, to thrive. So in this book, I'm not just placing the onus on black women. I'm saying, I see you, I understand what you're going through. And as we continue to take steps forward, the organizations that we are going into, they have to do their own work. The other thing that I talk about, Adrian, is that, you know, everything that we've talked about, it's difficult, it's weighty, it's hard. You know, these statistics are even hard. And so it's very, very important as we are forging the careers that we want and forging the life that we want, that we identify a spiritual practice and a way to sustain ourselves, even as we're fighting for progress, to be very careful and very intentional that we are shoring ourselves up. And that could look like, you know, being a part of a very supportive village or a network of black women who are committed to being transparent and honest about what they're going through, where they found success and resources that can help one another. Oh, wow. You really hit the nail on the head. That sounds like something I cannot get enough of. So I'm super excited for first and only. And can you please tell our viewers when they can get it and where they can get it? So you can, um, you can pre-order the book now and it will ship on February 9th. That's just a few days away. You know, by the time you blink, the book will be in your mailbox. And it's okay. any, your favorite, your favorite um, bookseller. It's online, Target, Walmart, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you name it, it's there. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. It's Adrian Lawrence once again, TYT's The Conversation. Thanks for joining us. And now we welcome in political strategist and racial equity expert, Ajoa B. Asamoah. Thanks for joining us, Ajoa. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so most recently you served as the Biden-Harris campaign, uh, really for their national advisor for black engagement. What were some of the successes that you had in that role? Well, thank you so much again for having me. Um, I got a chance to work alongside some of the best and brightest, including uh, my brother, Trey Baker, who served as the national director. We were tasked with uh, mobilizing our community, engaging in ways that were meaningful. In terms of successes, you saw numbers uh, that were unparalleled in terms of turnout for the first time that I'm aware of on any side for any presidential campaign, you saw uh, a presidential campaign actually have an agenda for the African diaspora. 
you saw people excited and engaged about the idea of a black woman ascending to, you know, vice president. So whether it's the HBCU community or, you know, the the uh, national panhellenic community and, and black women everywhere, black and brown women everywhere, uh, you know, just the excitement for me personally, and I'm, I'm here obviously in my personal capacity, but in terms of successes, just the engagement, the excitement around this historic election and the fact that we saw our people show up amidst a pandemic in record-breaking numbers. Yeah, that was something definitely to be proud of. And you know what? I'm wondering, too, you know, given how divided we are as a nation with these outright full displays of white supremacy and just insurrection, in any way did that impact uh, kind of your job in terms of making it harder to get the message out? I think what it did is it, you know, allowed people to see the stark contrast between the candidates. So, you know, our people have, you know, this is not new information for us in terms of the black community. We have, you know, r risen, if you will, against all odds. So I won't say that it made it more difficult. I think overall the pandemic in general, you know, was just a difficult time for everyone, not just specifically our community. So no, it didn't necessarily make it harder with the exception of, you know, how we engage. We're a very high touch community. And so not really being able to engage with our people in person was a challenge, uh, but it's one that we certainly were able to overcome. Absolutely. You overcame it, you know, gotten, got the win there, which is yes. so incredibly cool. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Nature. Yes. And I know that Biden has that 100 day plan for his first 100 days in office that really looks to uplift the black community, which is just incredible. And so what would you really like to see them do while in office to make the necessary changes? Well, first, I should say that I think that the new administration has demonstrated a commitment to racial equity and advancing it. Uh, on day one, you saw an executive order that was signed uh, that essentially rescinded that ridiculous 1776 commission. You saw our new president um, reverse a ban on training against diversity, equity, and inclusion. You saw our new administration direct agency leadership to review plans to ensure that they are in line with the administration's commitment to racial equity and to identify opportunities to advance racial equity. So I am excited about the opportunity to actually do the work that they were elected to do, and I have full confidence that they'll actually continue to do that. Yes, and I'm excited to see it. And so let's talk a little bit about some work that you've done outside of the Biden-Harris administration. Um, as I understand it, you worked on advancing the Crown Act, you know, that historic legislation that definitely means something to me, but our viewers may not necessarily be fully aware of it. So can you please share with them more information about the Crown Act and the role that you played in making sure that those laws get passed? Absolutely. So the Crown Act started as a piece of legislation, but essentially evolved into a full-fledged movement. But the bill itself seeks to uh, provide protections for people who have been on the receiving end of hair discrimination. Now, most people might think that hair discrimination is covered under the current classification of race, but it's actually not. We have seen far too many students miss valuable instruction time and had negative educational experiences as a result of their decision to wear their hair naturally and or in protective styles, which is problematic for so many reasons. There has been a longstanding problematic practice of racial discrimination in this country. 
And in the form of hair discrimination, this bill is really, really, really shedding light on that problem. So the bill amends the definition of race, not defining race, because we do know that race is a social construct while acknowledging that racism is very real. So what the bill actually does is it amends the definition of race to include the traits that are historically associated with it, such as hair texture and hairstyles. And so we've had great success working with a team of five amazing sisters since the beginning and Kelly and Orlena and Marcy and AC, uh, and we have been pushing forward. So it is now law in seven states it has passed in eight legislatures. It passed the United States uh, House of Representatives last uh, congressional session, and we look forward to it moving further this year. And it really is a shift in not just policy, but also culture. Absolutely. And because I know that something about hair discrimination is that it's generally impacted black women in the workforce, which is very interesting in part because black women are overrepresented in the workforce. So we've got tons of jobs. We're always out there. Yet it's clearly holding us down and keeping us down. So thank you for making that change. Thanks. And I also, yeah, go ahead. All right. No, I was just going to share that it, it, you mentioned in terms of the workforce. And so our students, of course, have been told that they can't participate in graduation exercises or they've been sent home crying or told they, you know, can't participate in a wrestling match that, you know, you've earned the right to participate in based on your talent. We've seen it impact our students, but we've also seen it impact, you know, our ability to be, you know, upwardly mobile by having uh, job offers rescinded and being passed over for promotions and, you know, in some cases actually being fired all for the decision to rock your crown how you see fit. So it's definitely problematic. It disproportionately impacts black women, although not exclusively. It definitely impacts black men as well. Yes, and hopefully it will die out and be the end of that. And I also know that you have some experience as the chair of the Democratic National Committee's African-American Leadership Council. And during your tenure, you've worked on several bipartisan initiatives. So the extent that you can share, what are some of those initiatives and really kind of what lies ahead? So really engaging our community in the party has been um, something that I've been able to work on with so many of my colleagues who work on the inside. Uh, largely, I've been tasked with you know, bringing people into the fundraising space, but in doing so, we've had an African-American Leadership Summit where we are really talking about the issues that matter. And you know, sometimes you're telling people or encouraging people, I should say, to vote one particular way, but it's really critically important to lift the actual issues. And so together with my co-chair, Diane, we have really worked to ensure that the African-American Leadership Council is not just about fundraising, but it's really about being fully engaged in the democratic process on our side. Absolutely. And also, I know that, you know what, you seem to have your hands in a lot of things that are game changing, which is so incredibly cool. And I was wondering, what do you find to be most enriching about your work and the opportunities you have to contribute? I really think it's about working on issues that I care about. You mentioned the Crown Act. That's something that for the last two years I've been able to work on diligently, uh, you know, with so many lawmakers across the country, those, you know, members of the National Black Caucus of State Legislators and, and Nobel women. But I also, a year ago, two days ago, I was able to work with a member of, of, of the council here in the District of Columbia to uh, introduce a bill that essentially allows students to take black history 
but count towards graduation credit. So whether it's, you know, leading the community engagement efforts and working with lawmakers to codify the nation's first office on African-American affairs, which I'm honored to do, to working on legislation that, again, you know, puts our history and our lived experiences front and center to engaging people and working, you know, on the Democratic side to really tackling issues around redistricting. Being able to do meaningful work is what's most important to me. Yes. So it seems like Ajoa does a lot when it comes to the workplace and getting things done. But what about the Ajoa at home who's been surviving this pandemic for what seems to be forever? What is giving you life right now as you stay indoors with this whole quarantine thing? Well, definitely adhering to the guidance of our uh, healthcare professionals and staying indoors. But I am getting life off of talking to my dad, who is abroad right now in Ghana, and talking to my goddaughter consistently, who is a seven-year-old, but so politically inclined, far more advanced than I ever was at her age, who calls me on a regular basis and wants to discuss politics. She told me she voted for Joe, and so she wants to know uh, you know, when is this pandemic thing going to be over? So I get life off of the two of them a lot. Oh, that's wonderful. They sound absolutely incredible, as are you. And so I want to thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. I can be found at A-D-J-O-A-B-A-S-A-M-O-A-H on both Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Ajoa. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.